Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Today's guest is none other than Paul Barron, who is currently the founder and chief executive officer of The Wall Printer USA. The Wall Printer has some really, really interesting and innovative looking outputs. What comes out of these printers looks extremely real and authentic. I highly recommend you check it out. But more importantly, uh, The Wall Printer is a franchise. So anybody interested in franchising, I recommend that you listen to today's episode. A little bit more about Paul before we dive into today's episode. Paul is what I would call a serial entrepreneur. He loves founding and starting companies, growing them to a certain point, and then selling them. He is what people term as industry agnostic, meaning he works in several different industries. His real expertise is in uh, marketing and sales, and as I mentioned, growing, growing companies and then selling them. He also mentors business owners and is very active at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington. He's also involved at the Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship there, where he helps students and budding entrepreneurs learn the ins and outs of entrepreneurship. You can tell he's extremely passionate about what he does. Um, Something else unique about Paul is his background is actually in mathematics, which tells me that no matter what you end up studying in school, what you end up doing, if entrepreneurship is in your blood, you are definitely able to succeed at starting and growing a business. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Business of You. Paul, welcome to The Business of You. How's your day going so far? Good, Rachel. Thanks so much for inviting me to join you and your audience today. Well, thanks for being here. Got a real fascinating background, so I'm excited to hear more about it and uh, and share it with our audience. No, you've been talking to my mother or my wife, all right. <laughs> <laughs> So, Paul, you have been very active, um, very entrepreneurial in lots of different industries. And I know you say you're business agnostic. So if you can share your journey to, you know, how you got started being an entrepreneur um, and if you could start back to where were you born and. <laughs> well, you, you know, you're talking to somebody. Uh, do we have video on this? podcast, yes. by the way. So. <laughs> So you're talking to somebody who's 70 years old. Um, so my journey started quite a while ago um, in 1951. We're not going to go that far back because your audience just won't stay with us. Um, and I don't even know if I will. Um, so uh, with that said, um, I, I have always enjoyed um, the adventure of discovery. Um, and whether that be people, product, services, technology, um, consumer goods, whatever, um, I kind of think of myself as a stereotypical American consumer. If I see something I like and I can afford it and I find value to it, and maybe it solves a problem I'm having, um, and whether that problem is emotional or real, um, you know, I, I, I might go ahead and look, look at that as something that I might want to acquire or purchase or invest in. Um, early on, if you want to go back to some extent, my background was mathematics. Um, I, I went to college for mathematics. Um, as, a, as a discipline, I graduated with a mathematics degree um, with my bachelor's of science degree, and I went into teaching, taught high school math. Um, I was also an avid tennis player um, through high school and college, um, and I managed to um, get my spending money um, where the graces, good graces of my parents um, stopped supporting me um, in, in my extracurricular activities. Um, I got my spending money by stringing tennis rackets for the athletic department at my university. Um, I enjoyed doing that, not only because it made me spending money, 
um, at, during college. Um, but it was also, it was, a, it was a skill I was learning and it was doing something that I was passionate about, which was tennis. Um, that kind of sums up really a common thread that happened um, really in and out through my entire path that followed for the next 50 plus years. Um, and that path carried me through um, when I graduated college. Um, I, I was a high school math teacher following in the path that I had laid out for myself. Um, but at the same time, I opened up a tennis sporting goods store uh, with a friend of mine who was out of work. And while I had a good full-time job teaching right out of college um, at a time when jobs were very scarce, um, and uh, this was very, uh, it was a very good stable path, which pleased my parents no end. Um, but at the same time, um, I, I really enjoyed uh, the business end of what I saw in that activity of stringing tennis rackets. And so I opened up a sporting goods store with a friend who could do it full time while I was still teaching. Um, it captured my imagination to the point that I spent a lot of time at that business, less time focused on teaching. And after three years, I was given a, an alternative, um, an alternative uh, that's being kind. I was given an ultimatum is more appropriate um, that they like me as a teacher and I like teaching. Um, but they said they knew that my outside interests in my tennis shop, uh, sporting goods store, was consuming a lot of my time um, as opposed to some of the extracurricular um, requirements of teachers and teaching. And so they asked me to make a decision. Am I going to go on and with teaching, in which case they would grant me tenure, um, which was a, a real feather in my cap at that stage after three years, um, or was I more interested in the business? And I made a decision at that point to go into business and devoted more time to my tennis shops. Grew it to three tennis stores, three sporting goods stores. Um, this was upstate New York in the area where I went to college. And, uh, and then I got bored. Um, I learned a lot about um, dealing with vendors and uh, customers. Um, a financial end of buying businesses and not buying businesses, but buying uh, products of leasing space for the stores. Um, a lot of aspects that um, I had to learn out of necessity in terms of growing this business as a startup, or as an entrepreneur, I guess, at that stage, not really understanding that's what I was doing. Um, but uh, that took me to the point that um, I developed a lot of skills and those skills were recognizable to a family friend who had a very large business um, that he needed somebody to, to come in and fill the role in a sales kind of management position. And he asked me if I would be interested in that. And he gave me the proverbial offer I could not refuse. And my partner was willing to buy me out of the tennis shops. So I decided to take that opportunity. And I learned a lot. And I learned a lot, of, a lot not only about um, sales, marketing, um, operations, manufacturing, because this was a jewelry manufacturing company. Um, and... Uh, and I did a lot of traveling uh, and, and there were a lot of aspects that I never would have learned on my own in areas that I really had, had no direct knowledge of. Um, so I was learning a lot. Um, I also learned that I was good at what I was doing, which was the customer relations, the sales, identifying new customers, um, new relationships, partnerships, uh, vendors for the company, um, and in various aspects that, that contribute in areas even beyond the sales role, but I guess would fall under the umbrella of sales and marketing. And so, um, so those are the hats that I, I started wearing. And, uh, and I was with that company for a couple of years. Um, I achieved a lot of success for myself and the company. I was still young in my 20s. Um, I got a Christmas bonus that I thought was wonderful. Um, I learned early on that the owners of the company were able to capture a much greater bonus than what I got, which they did deserve, which was their company. But I felt I deserved a raise. And I went into the owner of the company um, after Christmas time when I received this very generous bonus. And I said, thank you very much. I, I said, but I, I think I'm really um, ready for a raise um, come, the, come the new year. And he said to me something which I carry to this day, which has served me very well. Um, he said to me, he said, Paul, he said, you know, when you work for somebody, you'll never earn what you think you're worth. But when you work for me, I'll make sure I pay you better than anybody else will. And he did. And I quit. Um, and I went to work for a competitor who hired me, who allowed me to do just what I liked doing, which was travel sales and marketing at the time of a very similar product and service for a competitor. Um, but it gave me an independence. I started my own sales rep kind of company. Um, and so it was that level of independence that I was lacking that I took away from that conversation that said, you're right, unless I've got total control over my own 
activities and uh, that I, I would probably never achieve the financial goals I was looking for. Little did I know that would be a path that I could not achieve the personal um, and emotional goals I wanted as well. And so uh, that business lasted several years. I did very well. Um, I bought my first house, um, $24,000 in New York back in the 70s. I was, I was very happy about that. Um, and, and then a friend of mine was in the restaurant business, and he was actually in the college bar business, but wanted to get into the food service and restaurant business. And so I decided to invest with him. We were personal friends. This speaks to also a common thread in my business ventures that I always had a partner. Um, I've always enjoyed um, having somebody that could um, complement the skills that I did not have. Um, and when I say skills, sometimes those were actual um, skills like this guy knew about food service and uh, food preparation and buying um, perishable products um, and a lot about um, menu creation and things related um, to the food and beverage industry that I knew nothing about. Um, but I knew about real estate at that time. And I knew about um, uh, people uh, because of the, the, the jobs that I had taken. Um, and I knew a little bit about what might be successful and might not be that catered to the uh, geographic environment um, uh, in, the, in an area where we were looking to open a restaurant. And we pooled our skills. We actually spent a year seeing if we could get along with one another. Um, he pulled some money together I, by selling the restaurant he had had. Um, I sold out of the jewelry sales rep company that I had built up, um, sold that. And we took a year off, a wonderful year. I played, we played tennis every day, went out to lunch every day, went out for dinner every day to talk about menus and whether or not we could just get along together in a business. Something I think very important if you're going to consider a partnership. Uh, the relationship, it's a marriage, and the relationship between you and your partner has to not only be something that you can reach on an emotional level, but also um, on a level of complementary skill sets. What does each of you bring to the party? What are your responsibilities going to be uh, to the business and to each other? And so when, when a year went by and we resolved all of those things, everything from the menu we wanted to the location we wanted, to the fact that we could go through a day and not kill each other, um, except on the tennis court, um, we went into business and we bought a building, renovated it. Um, that was in 1979. That restaurant, I'm very proud to say, which I sold out of to, to my partner in 1990. I was in it for 12 years, which was about as long as I'd ever done anything in my life then and since. Um, it is still open today. So 21, 41, 43 years later, that restaurant is still open, which thank you. I mean, that, that is amazing for In any business, much, yeah. much less a restaurant business. So 43 years later, it's got the same menu that I created back in 1979 with my partner. Um, it's, a, it's still a wonderful upscale seafood steakhouse. Um, in Montgomery, New York, a little town outside of Newburgh, New York. What's um, it called? Ward's Bridge Inn. Ward's, Ward's Bridge Inn. Yep. I totally recommend, uh, I don't recommend a lot of things to a lot of people because I let people rely on their own um, decisions. Um, but I unhesitatingly re recommend this restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's about 75 miles north of New York City. Yeah. Anyway, that's, a, that's another long story because that was 12 years of my life. Um, but it did get to a point where once again, my partner was the restaurant guy. I was there for the real estate and to learn. But to speak to your audience about what you need to do to be successful in anything or or to know yourself and what makes you tick. Um, I, I decided to 10 bar and well, decided to. I did 10 bar, whether it was a decision or not, that was self-driven or driven by circumstance. Um, I never wanted somebody to know what I didn't know, even though um, a business should be run with the proper skills and the proper people doing those things. Um, I tended bar, I washed dishes, I, I waited tables, I cooked. Um, and again, each one of those things has a story to themselves, not, not necessarily suitable for this audience or our time slot. Um, but suffice to say, um, that's also something that somebody else told me, um, which I still describe when people ask me today, what makes a good leader? What makes, what makes me, which I hope I am, a good CEO for the company that I have now and for those that I've had in the past, uh, what makes a good CEO is somebody I believe is smart enough to hire the best people for the jobs that are needed, but wise enough to back off and let them do it. Um, it more often than not, and I'm guilty of this and have been, uh, you overplay your hand. Uh, you don't what I call stay in your own lane. Um, you start doing more than you, not only what you're capable of doing sometimes, 
but more than what your time is best suited for what you should be doing. And if you do have good people, let them do it. Um, chances are people will rise to the occasion. Um, it'll build teams better. It'll let, make them interact with one another. Um, I've grown this business that I'm in now from, from nothing to 15 people right now in a period of two and three years at a time when people were being laid off for COVID and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I'll jump back now uh, just quickly to just basically describe what's driven me up to this point. Um, once I sold out of the restaurant business, I started taking jobs, actually went back to my roots in mathematics and technology, and I started a little software company. Um, not important what the product was or why I started it, except to say that it, it became, it was a communications product and it, it reached a level of success that it was acquired by another company. And um, I got a name to myself as somebody um, in the communications field um, could identify an audience for a product that didn't exist before. And so I was hired um, by a company in Georgia um, that had just come out of um, the university, uh, Georgia Tech, um, a bunch of technology geeks that created a very interesting product um, that was just coming out of a couple of years of development and now it was time to go to market, but they had no idea who to sell it to or how to sell it. And so somebody found me and they introduced me and I went to work for them to help them articulate um, their value proposition and bring that product to market. And I was getting them some very good clients. Um, there was a Russian company um, that was a direct competitor of theirs that not only had the technology they had, but also a lot more interesting things in audio, video, um, communications, navigation system technologies, all of that kind of stuff. And this is going back to the year 2000, dating back about 20 years now. Um, to the time that um, a lot of these things were just new, um, video calls, um, um, navigation systems, GPS technologies in devices. Uh, this was all just coming into its own. And so um, me and my Russian counterparts, um, and again, this is not a political um, statement, um, but I'm happy to share my belief that it's any issues that we have is about governments and people who are in charge that maybe shouldn't be. It's not about the people themselves. I, I represent a, and I partner, I have a partnership, a very strong partnership with a Chinese company today. I have a very strong, I had a very strong partnership where we still exchange birthday cards and holiday greetings with a Russian company that I represented for 12, 13 years. But at the end of the day, we would travel to the same trade shows and we would sit down and over a couple of vodkas, those boys can drink and women too. Um, we would have a couple of drinks and, and they invariably say to me, Paul, you just landed that account with Motorola. How did our solution was so much better? How did you get that business and we didn't? Well, I reach across the table and I say to them what I said on many an occasion, um, you're Russian, I'm not. That was not a statement of anything other than the fact that there's a cultural communication barrier between any foreign country and any foreign culture and Americans. And it goes the other way too. Um, there's, there's, you know, we, we don't, people don't, they're not, it's not what you grew up with. And when I say grew up with, I'm, I'm not talking politics and I'm not talking economics, not talking culture so much as I'm, I'm talking about family. I'm talking about just the way you communicate with one another. Um, language has a, has a way of either embracing people that you're with or putting people on a defense. And certain languages, like the Russian language, like German languages, they're very, very direct and very to the point. And that's not only among their, their own people, which maybe it doesn't feel that way, but certainly when they're taught English, it, it comes across different than when English, an American is taught English. And, and we're around it all the time. And what I mean by everything I'm saying is they found that I was able to communicate better with the American audience than they were. That's really, that's the point I'm trying to make here. And so it was that and that alone, but they once again, like somebody else in a prior story I told, made me an offer I couldn't refuse from the Russian company. And I went to work for them and I left the American company because for the most part, they had just a much more interesting and quality product than I was offering. And, and I like being passionate about what I'm selling. Um, I think that's important. If you can't 
not only go to sleep at night knowing that you sold somebody or recommended something or engaged somebody with a partnership or a referral that would be to their benefit. You're doing yourself and you're doing your customer or your audience, whatever it might be, a disservice. And you, and you won't feel good and nobody will win in the long run. A short-term sale is never a, an offset for long-term success and relationships. And so, so I went to work for the, Ameri for the Russian company as a hired gun, so to speak. I was a salesperson um, that was a commission salesperson uh, for 12 years. I did very well. Every Skype call that you make, um, every video call that is at the basis of Skype, the video technology, um, the uh, technology that's on your Samsung devices, every music clip that you hear in an iPad, iPod, iPhone, I don't know if they still have iPods anymore, but every Apple device, every music clip, all of that is Russian technology that I licensed to those or was instrumental in the licensing to these American companies. And, uh, and it did very well for me financially, but after a point, I saturated the market with the technology of this company um, and actually then helped them try to find an exit for some of their people and technology, um, especially in the navigation fields. And uh, I went on to do something else, but I had gained a reputation in what I've just described as somebody who can take a foreign company's product and identify high value customers in the American audience. So from there, I will fast forward you through a history of a self-service dog wash machine from Australia, um, a Chinese headband headphone for children with little characters like from Nickelodeon and Disney on it, um, a, um, an innovative design for a baby bottle from Austria, um, a media communications board from Israel. And I took all these products and helped these companies find their American audiences, grow their products, maybe find vendors, partners, manufacturing partners when it was a hardware product like the dog wash system um, that they could manufacture here in, those, in the United States rather than ship these 800 pound machines from Australia to here by boat. Um, but that's the reputation I got, somebody being able to do that. Financially, win-win for me all around. Um, emotionally, I always wanted to own the companies and never had the opportunity to do that. And so I retired several times saying, enough, I don't want to do this anymore. And invariably, though, I would be on the on the internet like we are today, and I'd be surfing for something, or something would come up in my feed, thanks to Google's infinite wisdom or whatever, and they would know that I'm thinking about something about something. And uh, one day I was sitting there, and this um, and this vertical printing machine came up. And actually, that's totally not true. Uh, first, I was approached by a German company um, that had a vertical printing device which I had never seen or heard about before. And they approached me to be able to, um, to once again, sell their product in the United States. It was at a time in my life after a few of these other um, gigs that I described that I wasn't gonna go work for anybody anymore. Um, I was comfortable playing tennis at this point and swimming, which are my two sports and taking care of my dogs and my family. Um, but uh, I was still, restless and always looking for something to do. And so uh, this company approached me, but I could not make the deal I wanted because they once again wanted me to be a commission salesperson to help launch their product there from Germany to the United States. Uh, they did have a distributor in Canada, but they didn't know what they were doing and they weren't launching it. And they asked me to help out, but they wanted me to work on commission. And I said, I don't do that anymore. And I tried to buy into the company and they weren't, didn't want to consider that. Um, so the conversation ended. Um, but the machine that I saw was really cool. And I said, I've never seen anything like it before. And, and that's unusual because I kind of think of myself as fairly normal, although many would argue that point. Um, but uh, I would invariably then call to my wife. Um, I'm, I'm talking to you today from my office, but I have a home office also. And at the time um, I was sitting there and I said, Maureen, come take a look at this. Now, when she hears that, when she hears that sentence from me, honey, come take a look at this, rather than actually come into my office and see what I'm looking at. She usually cuts up my credit cards and hides the bank account <laughs> um, because her thought is, here we go, Paul's going to invest in something crazy. And so this time, after a couple of days of my persistence, she took a look and she said, wow, that's really cool. Let's learn more about that. And that's what I did. And I started learning that this was a technology that was not new at all, even though I just heard about it. It's been around for about 13 years. It was invented by a Chinese company who developed software to turn a desktop printer into a vertical printing machine to print digital art or text or signage or anything else onto walls 
any wall, whether it be concrete, metal, glass, paper, canvas, wood, wallboard, didn't matter what it was, any wall, indoors or outdoors, with a type of ink that could hold up outdoors under weather conditions and indoors under perfect conditions. Um, and, uh, and basically it's your desktop printer, but on steroids. Um, and so uh, not an inexpensive machine, costs about $30,000. Um, the German machine, no disrespect to Germans, by the way. Um, I drive a BMW. Um, I value a well-engineered product. I cook with Henkel knives, which I think are the best <laughs> knives in the world. But just because something says made in Germany doesn't mean, as I learned here, does not mean it's the best of breed or the best value for the money. The German product started about forty dollars to $50,000. Um, the products I sell are in the twenty-five dollars to $30,000 range. And we actually have features that they do not have um, and in workmanship and everything else that certainly met my standards um, and would meet anybody's standards. Um, we have features that I actually co-own patents with the Chinese manufacturer, which is very unusual also for an American company to co-own patents. Um, they are, um, it, it, when I reached out and did my homework on why I had never seen a machine like this, I learned that there were only five, literally a handful of companies in the world that manufactured these machines. The German company was the only one of quality, but it too did not have some of the features our machine had, like the ability to print with white ink behind the image, which is very important if you want to print on a dark wall um, and have those colors really pop out or print on glass and not have the sun shine through and, and wipe everything out. Um, the, those are features we offer that no other machine offers. And there's other machines that, are, that were manufactured by an Indian company that's a nice machine, but a home hobby solution, not a commercial quality product. Um, and then there are two other companies and I dismissed them for one reason or the other. Um, but the one Chinese company that was the oldest one that had about 500 customers back in 2019 when I discovered this product, um, we started a courtship of sorts to learn about one another. Fast forward, we reached an agreement in late 2019 after about a year of dancing with one another where I constructed an agreement uh, with their approval um, that gave me total control over the product and company and sales for all of North America and South America. So I own all rights to Canada, the United States, Central America, Mexico, um, the Caribbean and um, South America. And those are the markets that we service and support and train and sell. Um, we manufacture our own inks today and couple of factories here in the United States that I um, um, that we invest in purchasing inks from. And we, uh, we sell and support everything from our Wilmington, North Carolina headquarters. And so um, that's where I am today. We, I wasn't the smartest kid on the block though. I'll grant you that because in 2019, when I invested heavily, I won't give numbers, but I invested in this company. Um, I then, um, got my first shipment of machines in December of 2019. Um, and then there I was with a warehouse full of products that nobody had ever seen or heard about in the United States or South America or any place else that I was servicing. And um, COVID came around, as we all know, and the world stopped. And certainly people weren't even going out and investigating purchasing um, something like a Dunkin' Donuts or a, or a plumbing business or an elect electrical uh, or pest control or pizza places, things that you know about, much less something that nobody's ever seen or heard about before. So nobody was traveling to come see us in Wilmington, North Carolina. They weren't traveling. Um, they weren't thinking about this. So what did I do? Um, I started hiring people. And I started hiring the people to learn how to use these machines, how to support the customers, because I saw that there, I thought, I prayed that there was going to be light at the end of the COVID tunnel. And even though we haven't achieved that yet, things did open up eight months later in August of 2020 as a time frame for when we've we reached a, um, a headcount of a great team um, that was built with marketing, sales, and technical support um, that could start, that spent 10 months introducing our software to our product to people through social media channels, Facebook, online, because there are no trade shows or anything like that to introduce this. And again, as I said, people weren't traveling to us. So um, we built up a following of people who started looking at videos of what this machine could do. And come August of 2020, we sold our first printer. Now, fast forward to August or November of 2022, I've got 100 customers, people that we put into business uh, with our business model, which is to sell a printer and or a territory to people to have exclusive rights to their territory. We're not a franchise, 
We don't reach into people's pockets and take revenue from them um, or obligate them for anything other than to buy more printers over time as they grow their business without having any interference or competition from us or anybody else in their markets. And so we control that by not selling to anybody else and by supporting the growth of our customers. Uh, we, we're selling now about one to two new territories every week. Um, a territory means minimally 300,000 population, carries a fee associated with that. Um, our printer price, which is $29,000, gets reduced $5,000 when people say they want a territory because we give them the opportunity to grow their market, buy more printers from us, get a discount on their printers, which allows them to recover those initial territory fees and get that money back. But it promises us that they will grow and invest in their business and grow it so that we sell them more printers over time. It's a win-win for both parties. And that's our business model today. Very proud of the team that I've built up. I think I've done what I said I should do as a CEO. I back off on a daily basis and let them do the jobs that they were either trained or know how to do. And uh, we're very happy. If anybody goes to thewallprinter.com, they will see one of the latest projects that our printer has been um, purchased to deliver mm -hmm. for a customer, a very famous customer. Um, um, Louis Vuitton. I'm sure all the ladies in the audience mm -hmm. have heard of them. Um, the men should hear of them because one day the ladies will ask for a handbag from them. <laughs> um, but um, anyway, that's the latest company to be using our printer. Um, and uh, in the next an exhibition that's in New York City right now, our printer is sitting in the window of a Louis Vuitton um, store. Two, 200th anniversary. Not a Louis Vuitton store, but a building uh, that actually used to be Barney's New York okay. men's clothing store that Louis Vuitton has redone for a world traveling exposition of or exhibition of their famous Louis Vuitton trunks that used to be how the company was founded to um, help people transport their luggage on ocean ships mm -hmm. and on the trunks uh, of a car. And they, they contracted 200 world famous artists and celebrities to design a trunk. And they've got 200 on exhibit so um, cool. at this building on Madison Avenue in New York City. And we we have a wall printer sitting in the window at the entrance, printing those designs of those trunks all day, every day. So it's a real honor for us um, after such a short time being in the business to be recognized by companies like this and to um, to be able to That's amazing. Uh, for the world for the world to see what these printers can do. Yeah. Um, okay, I'll shut up. Let you ask me some questions. <laughs> no, fascinating story. So, if somebody purchases a printer, are they an their own LLC or what? However, they structure their they, business. They start their business. Our customers fall into many buckets. Some are startups that yes, they would form an LLC or sole right. proprietorship. Sometimes they have their own business. They're already a painter, a general contractor, yeah. um, a business of really anything that maybe sees this as an adjunct to them, where they can add revenue. A painting contractor is a good example, or an artist or a muralist um, that wants to design, or a graphics designer that wants to design images for people and uses our printer to just get that image onto a wall. Um, the painter who goes into somebody's house or a restaurant or a school and paints all the walls eggshell white or gray, um, and now they want artwork and they learn that um, one of the children are into dance and another one is into sports. Uh, one is into you know Power Rangers, or I don't know if there are Power Rangers, and anymore, but into action figures. Um, they're into sports. They want the local of a local sports team on a wall with just a nice landscape right. picture like you see behind mm -hmm. me in my office. And as long as you can have a digital image of that, um, you can blow it up and put it on a wall and any size. There's no limit to the height or width of an image that you can print with our wall printers. Um, think of a skyscraper with a window washer who has scaffolding and goes up yeah, to each yeah. floor to wash the windows. You can do the same thing with painting an image, stitching one image on top of the other image until you get one big mural. Um, so you can do that with our printers. That's um, amazing. How did you think of this business model? Uh, I mean, you know, the way you've broken it down and we were chatting a little bit before the show, uh, is it your mathematics background and your business background that helped you identify this? Or did you work with a business consultant to figure out the numbers? And again, like how do it, I mean, to some extent you're incentivizing printer owners to continue to be customers since you're selling the ink um, and also okay. some of the so parts. The answers, so the answers to the questions that you just threw out are yes, yes, no, no, maybe yes. Um, so uh, the uh, 
the math is certainly there um, to, for, for how I figure this out. And I'll describe that to, to be the basic answer to your question about how I determined this business model. Um, I did my homework for a good year after discovering this machine from being introduced to it um, by this competitor. Um, and I went out and I did my homework to find out who else was doing it and, and who, who is making money doing this. If I was going to create a business for other people, which was my design from the very beginning, I never wanted to be the wall printer, the person delivering the services. I wanted, I saw this as a business that in the, in the time that even that was, in, though it was pre-COVID, I'm still always thinking of what creates business opportunities for other people. What, you know, where are the customers? Who wants it? Why do they want it? What problem does it solve? And so putting artwork on the wall, there aren't that many ways. You can put wallpaper, yeah. you can buy a painting and a picture or take a photo. You can frame it, you can put it on a wall, you can buy a vinyl sticker. Um, there aren't a lot where you can have right. something hand-drawn. Um, that's not a lot of choices. You have more choices for hamburgers and pizza than you do for putting artwork on the walls. So, um, so I saw that as an opportunity. And there's certainly no lacking of walls in homes, businesses, schools, hospitals, right. um, buildings. So I saw that as a big potential market. Um, with an opportunity that it does provide something that people may want. And so after I did my homework, I saw the people that were making money. And the people that were making money were in populations of about 100 to 200,000 people. And they had anywhere from one to three machines in their business delivering artwork onto walls for their customers. So I took that, to answer your question, mm -hmm. I took the math of that, brought it back to the United States without thinking of North and South America and, and all right. of that. So I that was in China? To Sorry to interrupt, but was that in China that you saw? Southeast Asia, okay. Southeast Asia, India, Japan, mm -hmm. a little bit in Europe, a little okay. bit in Russia. That's where their markets are and were. Um, that's what they were servicing, mostly Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I took that business model of those people that, were, that achieved a level of success. And I said, here we are in the United States. There's 300 million people. So I took a number, totally arbitrary, well, not totally arbitrary. I said to myself, if I'm going to make this business a success and I'm going to make my customers a success, I have to give them enough area exclusively to grow a business with somebody that nobody's ever seen or heard about before. So that's why I wanted the exclusivity model. Right. And, I, and I did not want it to be a franchise, um, which has exclusivity model, because I also have an experience of about 15 years providing technology to franchise systems. And so I know about the franchise model and there are some things I like about it, some things I don't like about it, but I didn't want this to be a franchise system. So I devised an exclusivity model, but I also had to come up with a number that was uh, that I knew would get almost guarantee success. And since I saw success in populations of 100 to 200,000 people in the hundreds of customers that were already using this machine yeah. from the manufacturer, um, I said, if I'm going to grow this business and make this a real success for not only myself, my family, my employees, my customers, I had to give them enough bandwidth to have exclusivity, but I also had to be able to sell enough of these to make it a successful growth path. Right. That number, which at that point was pretty arbitrary, um, but I knew would make me a, a lot of money and make my customers a lot of money, was 1,000. I wanted 1,000 territories to be the potential for this business. And there are 300 million people. So the math of it is 1,000 into 300 million is 300,000 per territory. Mm -hmm. So that's how I came up with 300,000 as a territory. I and I put a $10,000 price tag on that. I said, I'm going to re I'm going to come up with a fair price based on all my costs and everything else for the machine. And so that number came out to be $30,000. But if I said, if people will commit, if people will commit to purchasing more machines over time as they grow, then I'll reduce the price of the machine and let them recover those territory fees that I would charge for the exclusivity. I so see. that's the method to my madness of how we came up with $24,000 for the price of the machine, $10,000 for the price of the territory of 300,000. It's also $25,000 if they want a territory of 1 million population. Okay. Um, and we prorate everything in between or large or um, I've sold, for example, one person, one business purchased all of Washington and Baltimore, a population of 8 million people. Okay. And that was a territory that cost $100,000 um, because we discounted it from 25,000 per million um, from eight, from 200,000, 50% because they raised their hand early on and made a commitment. So we gave them a serious discount which we still do today yeah. to people who are buying larger territories and committing to more machines over time. 
So each time you made a pivot in, in terms of the business you got involved in or identified a new partner, what, what was the driving force behind that? I mean, I, you shared some different circumstances, but um, <clears throat> for example, like why did you decide to sell the restaurant when you did? Um, so mm-hmm. the short answer is boredom. Okay. The longer answer mm-hmm. is boredom and control. Mm-hmm. With the restaurant business, that was a business I owned. So I had the control part of it down. I had a great partner, but after 12 years in it, as I said, I went into it for the real estate and the growth yeah. and, and and it was exciting to me. Um, my parents actually during that time relocated from New York to Florida. Um, I visited them quite often and I liked playing tennis. And so I was playing tennis more in Florida. And so I said, yeah, I might like to live in Florida and not New York and spend any more winters in New York. So the driving force for pivoting out of the restaurant business was because I wanted to play tennis every day. And so um, that was the reason for that. Uh, And then boredom set in and I had to go into business. And in fact, I opened up another business in Florida um, with the exact same business model of my very successful restaurant in New York. And I lost in one year in Florida what I made in 12 years in New York. Really? Um, that's what that's that that what is what some people would call a failure, but I call it a learning experience. A hundred percent. I I had I had partners that were not good partners. Um, I did not do the market study that I did in New York for yeah. that year that I described early on with my partner. Um, I just was living there and I said, Well, what do I do? And I said, Well, I just finished a really good gig with a restaurant that was really successful. I'll open up a restaurant. No market research to speak of, no good partners to speak of, and and I got bitten by that. Yeah. Um, but once again, that also created the independence part where I wanted to go and work for myself. And that's when I started becoming this hired gun for companies and doing things on a commission basis because I knew that the, the my ability to develop relationships with people um, and and unlike the relationships I had in that restaurant, uh, the second one, um, the relationships that could become more positive. Um, those are the ones I wanted to nurture and build. Sure. And I was able to do that in the sales capacity for these other companies. So that's what I did with that. How, very interesting. So what did you do from 19 till about the end of 20 or early 21 to start selling the printer? Well, what we did when this, again, as I mentioned, was a product nobody's ever seen or heard right, about before. Right. What I did is my first hire out of the, my first hire in this business was a student at the local university who had worked for me in, as an intern um, in prior businesses. And so um, he had a following that he developed through his social media work. Okay. Um, he became my first hire um, as my social media marketing manager um, because I figured since people weren't traveling, we've got to travel to them yes. and let them know what this looks like. And we can do that through Facebook and Instagram and mm-hmm. TikTok and YouTube videos and, and such and Instagram, Pinterest, whatever. And so, um, so he was hired to do that, to create ads and videos and uh, mm. of the printers printing when we learned how to print with them. Um, and then I had another team who was developing the manuals of operation and the learning tools and the instructional materials. Um, so that's what we were doing for those eight months in 2020 mm-hmm. um, when nobody was doing anything um, in terms of purchasing or coming to visit us. Um, but then when things started, then they've grown. We've continued that. We've just increased our marketing spend, increased our headcount and our ability to support our customers, their ability to purchase more printers and and lower our sales um, cycle, uh, which is still about a six to eight week lag time okay. between the time that somebody orders a printer from me to the time that they'll actually get it um, and get it customized for them and their business. Um, so we're, we're always a little bit behind, but we're getting closer and closer to having machines in stock. But it's kind of a good thing because uh, people have to get their businesses established yes. um, and, and do other things before they actually get their printer and get trained on how to use it. Yeah. So, um, so the six to eight week time, God, I've been, we bought a new oven in my house and I've been waiting three months for a part <laughs> yeah. to make the, make the microwave portion work on the thing. So don't get me started on supply chain and delivery times, but we've been pretty lucky and pretty good to our customers. We've been at about the six to eight week time, which we set those expectations up front that that's what it's going to be before you get a printer. Right. Are you doing anything among the hundred that you've sold, if it's, whether it's a hundred different owners or less to um, assess like best practices so that you can yeah, okay. so we, we, we we're not we're not big cheese enough 
to where we have an annual conference yet, but we're getting close to that point where we may have an annual conference to have people come in and do workshops mm -hmm. and exchange ideas. But we are doing everything we can to build a community oh, that's well to build on the community that we've established with these independent owners. And we encourage them to talk to one another. Uh, we also encourage our prospects, people who are looking at this as a potential business. We put everybody's name and contact information on our website, on a map. Um, they could reach out to anybody and talk to them. Some people, of course, are at the early stages. Some people have been in business for a year doing this. Some people do it full time. Some people do it part time. Um, so we so they often ask us, well, tell us, you know, who's doing it the most so that yeah. we can get a good insight into the business. But but also the pains and um, and perils of starting something new, um, you know, are out there. And so we want to be very transparent. Uh, but we do want to encourage that our community works with one another because very often when you only have one printing machine that you buy at the beginning, even though some people are buying two or three printers right from the beginning, still they uh, most of them buy one machine uh, to see what it's all about and to get to use it. But then they very quickly realize that there are jobs that might require two or three walls to be printed. And to do it quickly, they enlist the services from our community, from another printer to come in because I've always believed in cooperation versus competition. It just helps everybody if you actually do cooperate with one another and you work out financial deals that are beneficial to all parties. And so, so we encourage that. Um, and eventually we will have that type of environment where uh, people can exchange ideas face-to-face. -face. Um, and we also offer Zoom calls mm -hmm. um, two times a month with our support team where people can go ahead and learn about tips and tricks of using the printers, advanced techniques, like printing that 50 foot mural on the outside of a building. That should never be the first job that somebody takes on when they get one of our printers, as opposed to printing you know, a nice image like mm -hmm. you see on the wall behind me mm -hmm. or a picture of their dog on the family room. Um, those should be the first jobs they do. Um, but, uh, but again, we do offer two Zoom calls with our support team twice a month yeah. and one day a month we offer a live in-house where people can come here to Wilmington if they want to and get face-to-face -face with our support team or with me and our sales team or with our marketing and media manager to learn about what they can do on their own Facebook pages or Instagram or websites locally to promote. Um, and we all share images. We all share videos of success stories. Oh, that's that's another thing our community does with one another. They they very readily, you know, sure, give, give a little attribution that this was done in Naples, Florida, or this was done in, you know, Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, but, uh, but by all means, they share those things because that too works for everybody's benefit. That's awesome. Paul, what do you see is next on your personal horizon? Aside playing tennis. <laughs> That's true. I'm still, I'm still what I wanted to do back in, <laughs> in, in 1973, uh, when, I, when I had my tennis shop. Um, at the end of the day, I, 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 at the end of the day, I just want my customers to be successful. I want my employees um, to do well for themselves and their families. Um, I want to sleep well at night because we've done good to others. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I am 71 years old. So this is going to be my last hurrah. Don't I tell don't my know. wife. Yeah. Don't don't tell my wife I said that. Um, but um, I my plan is to grow this business um, to anywhere from 250 to 500 of my original 1,000 goal, mm -hmm. and then put it at a point where I'm going to sell it, whether that be to my employees or to um, to an outside party. Um, but the goal is to build it up to about 250 to 500, somewhere in that range, and then look for an exit that will benefit myself, my employees, and my family. The 200 to 500 range is how many printers you sell and get out there? Or? How many customers? Oh, how many customers? Gotcha. Yeah, it'll be it'll be hopefully a multiple of that number of printers. Because by the time right. I have 250 to 300 printers, there'll be a lot of people in business two years or so who are already buying a second printer and such. Right. So right. that's the number of customers I want. I Remember, we still go back to the original my original math, we still go back to the original math. That hasn't changed a bit. Okay. I want to see 1,000 territories in the United States. And we haven't even talked about my customers, and we have customers in South America and in oh, Canada. Yeah. So those markets are still growing too. And I'm not even counting those in my dream for an exit. I see. Okay. Um, one last question, and then if you could tell us where to get in touch with you. But that last question is, these markets that you've identified, the 1,000 markets in the U.S., are they, do you have specific locations in mind? 
No. Okay. We The location we have in mind is a feed off of the people who contact us who know their own markets and think that they can be successful because they see the opportunity, whether they're in that business of adjacency, as I talked about, like painters, interior decorators, construction, or they want to start up or something. If they see their markets as having potential, we look at that market, we look at the economics, we look at the demographics with them, we define it on a map. And then they purchase that market and they grow that market. I see. Okay. But it's but we don't tell them. Of course, people who are in some of the more established markets, you know, like Chicago and right. um, you know Miami and you know such. Um, but then there there are people who have purchased and are doing extremely well in small rural markets um, that, uh, like any other type of business, just needs it needs the service and the opportunity is there. That's great. Paul, where is the best place to connect with you? Well, for anybody who wants to know, and again, I didn't want this to be a sales pitch for the wall printer, um, but if somebody wants to know about the wall printer, just go to our website, thewallprinter.com. It'll tell you 15 seconds to 30 seconds on the website. You'll see a video of the printer working. You'll know everything there is to know about the product, um, not how to use it, but everything of what it does. Um, And there's a contact page there with a very simple form for your name and your email address. Um, So you could reach out to us and we'll get you information about the wall printer. Um, And by the way, there are floor printers too. We have printing machines, which which have been invented since I took over. Um, We have floor because, and that was was driven by the necessity of people coming to us and saying, we would like personalized parking spaces in garages um, (laughs) of all things. But as I tell my customers, keep in mind, unless you're already a flooring company providing flooring where they want a logo on a gym floor or somebody's foyer in their home or office building, unless that's your customer, there are four times as many walls as floors. Mm. So think of the wall printer, not the floor printer as the first printer you should buy. So that's if they want to know about the wall printer. If you just want to connect with me, I'm happy to talk to people, learn about your journey, share tidbits of mine. I think I may have left out one or two. Um, You can find me on LinkedIn. Again, not an advertisement for LinkedIn, but it's a very good professional network, which can open up a lot of doors for connections to people. And that's where you can find me and learn more about me and my background in more detail, because I do publish everything I do on there. And um, so on a personal level, if somebody wants to reach out and connect with me, just Google me, Paul Barron on LinkedIn. I'm sure you'll find me. And uh, that's that. Perfect. I'm happy to I'm happy to connect. Thank you so much, Paul. Rachel, it's been a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to The Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.